Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So first of all, we revised or were introduced to the actual technique that we're practicing. And then we revised or were introduced to the hindrances, which, was, which is the Buddha's way of um, categorizing all those things that take us away from meditation. Uh, there are other categories, as you know, the ten defilements and the ten, um, I can't remember the word now, anusaya. Anybody know how to translate that? I've forgotten it. Oh, don't worry about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so these five hindrances are just a way of looking at things that arise in our meditation that takes us away. And the idea is that we can, we can see what it is, we note it, we're clear about it, and we know what to do to stop them arising, right? Uh, rather to stop them taking over, right? We don't want to stop them arising because that's the purification process. But we definitely uh, don't want to get taken over by them. We want us to remain awake within them and to use them actually to uh, investigate these three characteristics, especially the characteristic of suffering, dukkha, see? So remember, uh, there's um, three types of dukkha that the, the Buddha points to. The first one is dukkha dukkata, see? It's the suffering of suffering. It's the, it's the relationship we have with suffering which is the suffering, not the original stuff that comes up. So I'm sure you're all very clear on that by now, that the pain in the knee is not suffering, but uh, our aversion towards it, which is the actual suffering. And we can prove that to ourselves by finding an equanimity with this painful knee. And the same with, the, with our emotional life too. We can find a position with our depressions and anxieties and over-excitements and all that in a way that it's carrying on and we're just with it. See? There's a separation. And I think for, you know, for, for most of us, uh, that tends to be 99% of the practice. <laughs> it's 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. However, running concurrent with that are the seven factors of enlightenment. And uh, conjoining that or running along that too are the five spiritual faculties. So the, 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 the five and the seven sort of you know, meld into each other. The spiritual faculties are confidence, um, effort, awareness, concentration, and uh, in, um, wisdom. Let's say wisdom for the moment. <clears throat> and the seven facts of enlightenment are awareness, effort, concentration, calmness, and interest and um, equanimity with the investigation of the Dharma investigation of the Dharma so first of all just talking about this faith business remember that in Buddhism faith or confidence 
is not to be confused with belief. So belief is putting our confidence in a, in a statement to the point where we believe it to be true. I believe it. See? So what that obviously does is stop investigation. And the whole of the Buddhist path is about self-realization, in other words, me realizing the truth. <clears throat> so if I uh, just repeat the Four Noble Truths, that is suffering and origin of suffering, which is desire, and then bow, bow to the Buddha statue, you see, and I think that's it. Well, it's, you know, it's an absolute waste of time. See? <laughs> so just believing in that sense that we might, um, like so many things we believe that we don't know, you know. Uh, we believe, for instance, that the, uh, the earth goes round the sun. Uh, it doesn't happen perceptibly, does it? Not for me anyway, the sun still comes overhead. <laughs> but I have this absolutely, uh, absolute belief that it does, that we're going around the sun. Uh, there's a whole load of science that I believe, but I, haven't, I don't know if it's true for me or not. Yeah, I mean, I haven't tested any of this stuff. So uh, a lot of stuff we just, we just believe because in a sense it's neither here nor there, you know where the sun goes round us or we go round the sun as long as it's shining that's the important thing huh? but when it comes to the Dharma when it comes to the Buddha's teaching it is about us realizing what he realized so that means that we have to go through the very same process he went through in that sense he's not just an exemplar he's the archetype so there's the Buddha within us following that same similar path so this uh, faith is more of a confidence and the confidence is in the teaching and uh, the, 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 uh, the wisdom uh, is in three stages. Right? All of us came to uh, this practice by hearing about it first of all. So it's received knowledge. And then if that, if that interests us, if we're drawn to it, then we tend to read a bit more and eventually we think about it. And this thinking about it, then it becomes our own intellectual knowledge, you know. Even if you quote everybody, it doesn't matter, it's, it's your quote from now on. <laughs> so, so this, what was received now becomes your knowledge. I don't know about you, but I, uh, at one point I was trying to understand relativity theory, and I would read it and say to myself, oh yeah. And then I tried to explain it. Uh, it was impossible, I couldn't explain it. <laughs> So it's that, it's that gap between thinking you've understood it and actually when you try to explain what it is you've understood, you get all tongue-tied. So that business of, you know, say, dependent origination, you see, the Four Noble Truths. Could you explain the Four Noble Truths to somebody else? If you can explain the Four Noble Truths to somebody else, then that means that you must have thought about it and, you've, and, you, and you're able to pass on that information. If you can't do it, it's still at the level of received knowledge. See? So that's the same with all the important teachings around dependent origination, see? around this vipassana. Could you introduce somebody to it? See? And then, of course, uh, that isn't enough. It has to be realized. And that's where the vipassana comes in. So that's the next stage of panya, of this wisdom, is when you actually perceive it for yourself, actually realize it for yourself. So this uh, confidence and this whole process of investigation and of realization are, are, are linked. Obviously, if you didn't have confidence, you wouldn't go into it, full stop. You'd, you'd, you'd go into some other form of spiritual practice. So 
So that confidence underlies really everything that we do, you see, putting faith in the teaching, faith in the tradition, faith in the Buddha. So these are called spiritual faculties. They're spiritual faculties. They're what enable us. They're what enable us to uh, enter the path. Then there's uh, concentration and effort, and we'll come to that in a minute. And then there's awareness. Uh, <coughs> so if we now switch over to the seven factors, uh, what we have is this um, uh, again it's a, it's a repetition this effort with concentration so remember that concentration is a, is a word that tends to make us tight concentration uh, mainly because of our school days or whatever um, if you think of it much more as a steadiness of attention how long can you hold your attention on something that's what it's referring to right? a real steady gaze Right. How long can you hold your attention? And um, these days, because you know the enormous amount of information we have to process and computers and iPods and all the rest of it, our concentration tends to be a little bit uh, short. You know, especially they say of children. Uh, you know, a couple of seconds and that's it. They're off somewhere else. <laughs> so a lot of our practice is to uh, bring us into a state of steadiness of of attention steadiness of attention see and the effort that we need is just to keep that that's the only effort you need is to keep that attention steady okay now if the effort is too much then what you get is restlessness right now um, I we're presuming now that the meditation is that th these hindrances aren't there you see for the moment we're presuming that in fact there's clarity in the mind, there's a stillness, and there's concentration, there's a steadiness of attention, a focus. Hmm? If something, if some other stuff comes in, apart from just maintaining that steadiness of attention, uh, such as the idea of trying to see, trying to attain, uh, trying to make the focus more focused, then you get this little bit of extra energy which starts, which starts shaking it. And before you know it, you find yourself getting quite restless. And um, at worst, if the energy is really over the top, there tends to be a collapse in the meditation. Uh, some of you might have experienced that, where it just stops. And, and that's it, really. It's difficult to describe if you haven't experienced it. But you basically have to take an afternoon off and start again. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, it just drops like that, and you just can't do it. And it's like, um, it's like when you, if you force yourself to run and run and run and run, and eventually the body just stops. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a telltale to the meditator that they're putting too much effort into it. On the other hand, if you, if you don't put enough effort, then this steadiness of attention, you see, uh, drops you into a state of unconsciousness. And you'll know it's not sleep because when, when you fall asleep your body sort of rocks and shakes and you start banging the, your, your head on the floor but with this, with this you're, sitting, you're still sitting up bolt upright and anybody walking in the room would say now there's a meditator <laughs> See? but actually you're just not there you've, you've gone asleep, you're completely asleep and depending on the force of that, con of that uh, concentration you can be there for quite some time in the Hindu tradition uh, there's a tale of a, of a guru who 
uh, asks for some water and then enters into this state and then many years afterwards, ten years afterwards you see he wakes up and his first words are, where's my water? <laughs> nothing's happened for ten years <laughs> it's just one of these little tales you get about states of unconsciousness and unfortunately, well, in, in, uh, in, in the Theravada tradition sometimes they, they make that state of unconsciousness as an Ivanic state so uh, to me that's a little bit of a confusion but let that be there's a place in um, Chiang Mai Chiang Mai uh, Wat Long Pern where you do this Mahasi he teaches this Mahasi system he's a very old man now he doesn't teach himself but the system's there in which you, you really go at it I mean this is soft stuff compared to what <laughs> they sort of boot you you know uh, and then you yeah, right towards the end of your three weeks it's a three, it's a three week bash right at the end of the three weeks, uh, you're not allowed to sleep. See, and during that, that three week, during those three days, if you have a blackout, uh, they suggest to you that was nibbana. Well, I've always thought that was a bit fishy. So, in fact, somebody turned up at the meditation centre in in uh, Sri Lanka and, and said this, and and the the chief monk there said to him, "Do you think it was nibbana?" He says, "No, I fell asleep." <laughs> <laughs> so. It's, it's a dodgy one, you know, if you be careful. So, uh, the, um, if that happens to you, if, if you wake up and you find yourself still sitting like this, you know, bolt upright, then you know, ah, concentration's good, the focus is good, I'm just not putting enough effort in, see? Not enough effort to, to keep the wakefulness. Now, this tells us also something about good sleep, you see, because... Um, if a person finds difficulty in sleep, you know, they can't sleep for one reason or another, often it's the case that the underlying mental state beneath that unconsciousness is in a state of restlessness and it keeps bursting through and making us wake up, you see. So that's why the Buddha says if you practice loving kindness before you sleep, it creates this, this sort of lovely underlying state under sleep, you see, and you sleep well, you see. Uh, you can do it on the breath if you find the breath easier uh, but people I think often tend to sort of you know rush around all day come back eat watch TV and then just launch themselves into bed when it's time <laughs> and of course you know that hasn't been a preparation you have to prepare yourself before the sleep you have to you can't just very few people can just you know blank it out you know uh, and, and often that's not, not such a good sleep so you have to wind down at the end of the day wind down, play some sleepy music or something like that you know. and what you're creating is this, is this uh, subliminal level of beautiful mind see? so that, uh, that's, this, that's why they put effort and concentration together right? remember I'm using the word concentration because that's the word you'll, you'll come across but what we mean is steadiness of attention, okay? And uh, these two are always linked. They're always balanced together, okay? When there's a, a case of a, um, of a monk, whose name escapes me, um, who uh, is tr trying very, very hard, getting nowhere, and he decides that uh, he's had enough and he's going to go back to the lower life, get married, and have, and have a decent time for a change. And when the Buddha hears about this, goes and have a chat with him, and he, he says it's like tuning a string, you see. 
it's not too tight and not too slack you've got to be able to tune this string on on, a, on an instrument you know on a you know it would have been a uh, string instrument the vena and that's how he describes it you see so just getting that point where the effort is just right now this is all part of our skills of meditation see? this is this is us experimenting within ourselves to get the right level of concentration nobody can tell you that nobody can all the Buddha could do was give this guy an example you know that okay you know sometimes it's too much sometimes it's too you just got to get it right you see so nobody can 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 tell you how much effort to put in you see it's, we ourselves have to discover uh, our own level of effort our own level of concentration and so on you see and that, that's, that's part of the part of the practice part of becoming skillful Now, when I when I started teaching, this is you know going back to the late nineties, really, um, and even before that, I was doing a little bit. I used to teach in the, the method of my old teacher, uh, Ujanika. So even on a weekend retreat, I had them up at half past three. Get in there, beat them up, you know, <laughs> sit there, don't move. And yeah, they, they they used to be a, a sort of um, you know like a, you know like they're having these fusion uh, reactors, this 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 plasma. <laughs> the room would be filled with this plasma you know <laughs> sitting there going through this dreadful pain and um, uh, I used to you know do these uh, really sort of heavy retreat even for a weekend you see because that's what that's what I that's what I was brought up to do you see and uh, nobody came back <laughs> <laughs> only the real hard nuts came back you know the sort of bruisers so I thought, well, something, <laughs> oh, something's wrong, you know. And uh, I even did it up in my first long retreat. Um, well, you know. And it was when I came to Gaia, you see. So I have a lot to thank Gaia for, because my four years spent here was, was really my teacher training college. And it was here just seeing what the teachers were doing. And, uh, you know, recognizing that um, maybe this was, was a bit of the wrong tack. Because, frankly, of all the people whom I remember, I mean, you hardly remember people, but you see, when the Mahasis came in the late 70s, uh, a retreat would have 100, 150, 150 people, you know. And uh, in those days, uh, the men and women was, were all separated. You know, it's the Eastern way, you see. And the, the side of the men was chock-a-block knee against knee and the women were just up here a few of them and we'd be looking over think why can't we and uh, I, I don't remember them I don't think any any of them actually <laughs> uh, ever came back it was I mean the very few that I remember I got to Burma once and there were five or six and I often wonder what happens to them you know whether they whether they're even still practicing I know one person gave up and he came to see me I, I just ordained in Birmingham and uh, it was this push, you see, push, push, trying to get these vipassana insights. And he came to see me in, in uh, Birmingham. I hadn't seen him for about four or five years. That year he'd spent £10,000 on crack, that's what he told me. This is an ardent meditator. <laughs> so just, you know, like too much effort and then that sense of failure and, in a, you know what I mean? And, and within that you, you sort of give up really. 
mind you, in those days there was a, there was a, the sort of a, tended to be an, the erroneous idea that you know you you sort of went at it for six months and then it was sex, drug, drugs, and rock and roll for the next six. <laughs> then you went to Burma to do a bit more headbanging. Of course, it never <laughs> didn't get people very far, really. So uh, I began to um, reflect on this, on the way you see, and Westerners, uh, the Western culture and its efforts. You know, uh, the way that we put tremendous effort into things, compared compared to uh, certain uh, Eastern cultures. And uh, I began to stress the other two factors, the one of interest and calmness. And uh, people returned. You see, this was. <laughs> This was a great breakthrough for me. And so, uh, this business of interest and calmness. So, interest here is that, is that fundamental curiosity that arises with intelligence. You see it, you see it with birds, you see it with, you know, uh, you see it with all creatures that have some form of uh, consciousness that we can, that we can, um, uh, can see for ourselves. Um, I mean, I just give you this little thing. I mean, just to show you how intelligent um, we think that we're the only species that plays with other species. You know, we play with dogs and cats. But I was at Candaboda once and uh, waiting in a line for a meal, and the place was always full of dogs and crows. You see, they used to just put the food out on the floor, on the ground. It's all gone now; it's a bit cleaner. And um, there was a little dog, little pup chewing away at this rice and a crow jumped towards it and bit its tail and the dog turned around <laughs> see and the crow bounced back and the dog went back eating and the crow jumped forward bit its tail and the dog turned around <laughs> see and I thought well, that's very clever he wants you know the crow wants the rice okay so he went the third time see and the dog went <laughs> and then just sort of walked away you know, fed up with this, you see. And the crow, I swear, looked longingly after the little pup and then flew away. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you, but when you see things like that, you think, well, you know, a crow could become fully liberated. <laughs> so this business of uh, curiosity is just a fundamental uh, quality of this intelligence, you see, this curiosity. And the word interest, I think, gets across the idea that it's joyful. So in the list of seven facts of enlightenment, you'll see the Pali word PT. And this PT is also put with, the, with these absorptions we're talking about, which means a mental state, a pure mental state of happiness. But here, it's the joy that arise, arises when you're interested in something. So think about it, you know, the times when you've really been interested in doing something, it's been full of joy, see? Now, even that interest can uh, become too, too interested. See, it, become, it, can, it can take on this business of wanting to know too much. And that's why it's balanced with calmness, okay? So calmness and interest. And again, it's the usual thing. If you get too calm, you fall asleep. And if there's not enough calm, the interest gets too excited and you find yourself getting restless. So it's always this lovely balance. Yeah? And the final one is equanimity with Dhamma Vichaya. So in the standing meditation that I did at the beginning there, 
trying to point out the quality of equanimity. You see, the quality of equanimity is, is, you know, to come from a place of don't know, to come from a place of not sure, as if this is the first time we've ever done it. Right, the beginner's mind, as Zen would say. And it's also not an emotional involvement. It's not coming from a prejudicial place. Right. So these two factors uh, describe this even-mindedness. That's another way of putting equanimity. Unfortunately, both the word equanimity and even-mindfulness puts the accent too much upon thought. But it's also an emotional state. See, It's also a calm, even emotional state. And in a sense, it's the qualities you would expect of a judge, you see. You don't want the judge to get caught up in the clever arguments of lawyers, and you don't want them to get caught up in the baying of the crowd, you know, hang them, see. You want to keep equanimous, you see, above it all. And this allows us to uh, investigate the Dharma. Investigating the Dharma uh, simply means the three characteristics, the five, uh, the five defilements, uh, the five, yeah, the five uh, hindrances that we've been talking about, uh, the four noble truths. It can be anything uh, which which will then lead to understanding, understanding to liberation. Now, um, if there's not that equanimity there, what we're tending to do is to look for something that we've conceived. See. And the mind's very clever, remember. Yeah? So even though, I mean, we've heard about these words, Nibbana and all that sort of stuff, you see. So well, unwittingly, we can be searching for or looking for this sort of experience. We can have some idea of what it means to be a stream enterer. Ooh, see, and things like that. And what that does is it distorts the looking. And with expectation of that sort, even if it's quite unconscious, yeah, uh, there arises a certain uh, disappointment, uh, disappointment that it's not happening, there arises a, um, uh, a feeling that you can't get it because you've got this ideal in your head about where, what a spiritual insight is or where you should be, so again that leads to discouragement, yeah, giving up the path, and if unfortunately you do see what you've conceived, then surely you're deluded. Huh? You've just, <laughs> you've simply manifested what you wanted. So I had um, one, one lovely experience was a man at the centre came back and said that he'd had this amazing experience, believe it or not, while he sat on the toilet. Now if you remember Luther also had his great <laughs> interest while while uh, evacuating so <laughs> so th th those are moments of, re of relief and release remember so one expects <laughs> one can expect to have amazing insight on the pot anyway he, <laughs> he, he came back and, and I mean the way he described it it was obviously I mean a, a lovely mental state but it, it was obviously from his description but there's no way he, he, w he was going to believe it wasn't Nibbana that was it. He was convinced that this was uh, that he'd had this experience, and that's it. See. So now, uh, what happens to such a person? Well, they might stop investigating. They might think, well, that's it, and uh, and that's it. You know, why why should I carry on practicing or anything else?
So there's always that um, problem that when we have an experience, we overestimate. See, and the overestimation is often coming from some preconceived idea as to what uh, a spiritual insight is. Huh? So, generally speaking, if we have an insight, you see, you might go to a teacher and say what it is, and, and he might explain it and put it into context. But the spiritual progress is that as you go along, your next insight throws light on the one you've had before. So eventually, there, there comes a balance about what you feel you've experienced and what you haven't, you see. So, uh, it's best, you know, it's best not to decide. You can definitely, if you have an experience, you can definitely say what it was. That's not a problem. But it's rating it which can be the problem. See? And it's best just simply not to rate it, but to accept, but just to say to yourself, this is what I experienced, and this is what I have come to understand. See? And what I've come to understand ought to, be, ought to affect us systemically. You see? It's no good going around saying, you know, had this amazing experience into interconnectedness. And then, uh, and then, and then, going around shooting everybody. I mean, it's not <laughs> that interconnectedness when it falls systemically into the heart expresses itself as love. I mean, that's what love is, isn't it? It's it's the heart's connectedness with all being. See, and if it doesn't do that, then it's it's just been a head thing. See, it hasn't been a real spiritual experience. That's that's the difference. Now, you'll notice that all these factors everybody has. The only thing that turns them into facts of enlightenment is Dhamma Witcher, investigating the Dhamma. Everybody's got concentration and calmness and interest and effort and confidence in one way or the other. But it's actually getting all those qualities and placing them into this sort of investigation that brings about uh, spiritual insight. Now, um, when we begin meditating, when we sit like this, you see, you're trying to manifest these factors uh, both mentally and physically, okay? So physically, uh, you're calming, you're, you're stilling the body. Uh, mentally, you're calming the heart, you're silencing the mind, okay? And... Um, um, you're, you're, you're finding a position within yourself as the objective observer. Jnanaponika, yeah? in his very good book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, calls it um, the observation post. Okay? It's like a crow's nest on a ship. You found a particular place. Okay? These factors of enlightenment, as you move to that place, withdraw into that place. So all these factors of enlightenment are in the looking, you see. That's why awareness is the governing factor. You see, everything I've said this evening is virtually a complete waste of time. Because <laughs> if you centered the whole of your effort just on this awareness, all the faculties come up to support it. It's, it's a natural movement of these faculties to support that awareness. That's why we always start off with the breath and establishing awareness, this mindfulness on the breath. See? Now remember, what we're talking about is this satipanya, this awareness, intuitive faculty within us. Some traditions call it Buddha nature. And what it's trying to do 
is to abstract itself, uh, to, ir- to, to bring itself out of this morass of the psychophysical organism. Okay? And as it does so, and it finds this place where it can observe the body, heart and mind, it is pure awareness at that point. And it's when the light goes on of the intelligence, right, that all these factors are already there in the looking. That's why we can have all these factors there when there is enormous restlessness, enormous dullness, the mind uh, expressing itself, the heart emoting, and yet you can maintain this poise. Okay? But we get it through the practice of, first of all, quieting the body and slowly raising ourselves up to the level of the objective observer. See? Perfectly clear. So, our practice, you see, is to get always into that position of the observation post. Right? And once we're there, all the factors must be there. See? All the factors must be there. And that's basically uh, our practice. That's what, what we're constantly trying to do. And once it's there, you see, this intelligence, this curiosity, is able to investigate. And in investigating what it sees, what it's experiencing out there in the mind, in the heart, out there, you see, that's why the noting word is so powerful, because it, it, it pushes things away from us, makes us look at them as objects. Yeah? It slowly begins to realize its own nature. That's the process. So these seven factors, you'll see some are passive and some are active. Yeah? It's, that, it's, that, it's that quality of the feminine and the masculine. So eventually, uh, we ourselves, in, you know, we ourselves begin to develop those two qualities within ourselves. They're balanced, you see, the passive and the active, the feminine and the masculine. And what balances it is, is awareness. See? So you have on on the more passive side, you have the concentration and the calmness and the equanimity. And on the active side, you have the effort, the interest and the investigation, see? And they have to be absolutely balanced for insight to come. So one of our dangers, now that we know all this, is to be worrying about whether my interest is high enough, if my effort, see? So that's why I say, abandon all that completely, see? (laughs) Forget you've heard a word, (laughs) right? And just put your whole effort into just this moment-to-moment awareness. It's enough, it's enough. And that's what the Buddha says in the uh, discourse on how to establish mindfulness. See, he says, start off by observing the breath, contacting the body in the breath, and you know it's long or short, coarse or fine. See, and then as you keep watching it, you train yourself on that until the body's become a bit calmer, the heart's calm, the mind is still, you see. And then you begin to observe. See, by now you've found this observation post, and then you begin to serve, you to be uh, begin to observe the quality of impermanence, the beginning and end of each breath. See, and he says, just keep doing this until there is enough awareness and enough 
intelligence, this intuitive intelligence, for insight to arise. So essentially, the practice is very simple, very simple indeed. Hmm? Doesn't take a, a great big intellect. So remember the story of the of the monk who was so dull that he said when he he learned a phrase of the Buddha's teachings because in those days nothing was written; it was all, uh, you know, um, rote learned. When he learned a phrase from the Buddha's teaching, it knocked the phrase he just learned out of his head. And his brother said he was just too dull to be a monk and he better, better go back to lay life. And when the Buddha heard this, he went to see him. And he gave him a very simple exercise of you know, giving him a, a clean cloth. And he said, just rub it and wipe your face with the, from the sweat. And just, keep, and just keep saying impermanent, impermanent. And before lo- no long, he was, he was fully liberated. It didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> so... So there's a special, uh, the Buddha has a special insight into, <laughs> into where you are, you know. And this story is, is told to show that, you know, this, this is not, you don't need intellect. As opposed to that, there's a story in the uh, commentary about a monk who's extremely clever, a real scholar and an expert, and all his students become liberated. And then he starts thinking to himself, well, how is it I'm the teacher and everybody else and all these students are <laughs> not liberated? So he goes to see them and one after one they see this, this guy's just too intellectually conceited. So they kept saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really the one to help you. Why don't you go and see so-and-so? And he went all the way down the line until they, they, they gave him to a, to a child. Uh, that was very humiliating, but he thought, well, we'll have a go. And the child took him to this uh, anthill and when ant hills are, when ants move out of their ant hills, uh, snakes live in it. It becomes a, a snake's home. So he said, supposing this ant hill had six holes, and you wanted to get the ant, uh, yeah, you want to get the snake out. What would you do? You see. So the teacher said, well, you you just stop up five holes, and it would have to come out from the sixth. He said, that's what you've got to do. Stop the five senses, and everything comes out through the mind. Mm. And observe. You see, they went away, and in no length of time was fully liberated. (laughs) I hope my words have been of some assistance. May you by your um, wise reflection and um, excellent uh, development of the seven factors of enlightenment arrive at that wonderful place, Nibbana, sooner rather than later.